Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I wanted to uh, start off the talk with a contemporary prayer. Maybe some of you have heard this before. I first uh, heard this from my good buddy and colleague, Howie Cohn, a number of years ago. And uh, since then, I've seen it as a greeting card. Dear God, so far today I've done okay. I haven't gossiped or lost my temper. I haven't been crabby, mean, nasty, selfish, bitchy, or overindulgent. And I'm very grateful for that. But dear God, in a few minutes, I'm gonna get out of bed. (laughs) And then I'm probably gonna need a lot more help. Amen. We can, we can have all the, the ideas and um, um, understandings of what we want to create in our life. We can know perhaps what leads to happiness and what leads to um, unhappiness. Uh, But even knowing that, it's still hard. Because old habits uh, die hard. And we're all just creatures of habit. Sometimes I think of the Buddha as uh, the ultimate behavioral psychologist. I was a psych major, and when I was going into... When I was in, in, in college, we did a lot of Skinnerian rats and mazes, and I thought, oh, what, what's the point of that? You know, who needs to know that? You know, give me neuroses and deep pathologies. <laughs> but it, it turns out, actually, that understanding how we are developing in our hearts and our minds has everything to do with uh, understanding how habits are formed, how they can be broken, how they can change, how we can transform. And the Buddha said, one of the the great gifts of his teachings is that um, we can change. He said it's absolutely possible to change. And that we have a choice that we can, if we understand it, choose between creating suffering or creating happiness. And that's why we're practicing here because it is possible to change. One of the I might have mentioned it here before, one of the really um, uh, moving lines from the Buddhist teachings that kind of got me hooked early on was him saying, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, 
I would not tell you to do so. But it is possible, and this is why I teach. <clears throat> and as we practice here, first we, we get a sense and we see how the mind works, start to get a sense of, of how it gets caught and other possibilities. And we understand, it helps to have a, a body of teachings to point us and show this is where happiness can be found. And when we understand that, then we can choose to go for it. And we can, through practice, change our habits. How does that happen? How, what's the actual process of changing? And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, the power of intention. It all starts with intention. This is not a new word. We introduced it the other day in our um, meditation instructions. And I'm sure you've come across it in social psychology and in uh, self-improvement books and TV shows and things like that. But let's take a look at it from the point of view of Buddha Dharma. As I said in the instructions the other, the other day, um, there are different dimensions or levels of intention. There's the micro level on moment to moment dimension. And there's the macro level of um, a larger context with, with in which we practice. And if you're familiar with the Eightfold Path, um, wise or right intention is, um, is right there near the beginning. I'm sure if you've gone through the gate and you've, you ever go through and twirl the, the carousel, um, that was, by the way, made by uh, the person who did the carousel in, uh, in San Francisco, uh, uh, Golden Gate Park. Um, and there it is. You ever you ever see which one you're going to land on? You know which one. You can't go wrong. You know that's the good part of it. You know. Oh, right concentration. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Right action. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you get right intention, let it land in you. It's the second in the links of those eightfold path links. It starts with wise or right understanding that is seeing where happiness lies. Four noble truths, uh, there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's an end to suffering, there's a path leading to the end of suffering. Oh, and karma is also in that wise understanding that, that there are habits that we're all subject to. Then, 
after you kind of see the lay of the land and see, oh, this is, this is a possible path to happiness. Oh, I get it. This is what leads to happiness. Then the second link is wise intention. Sometimes it's called wise or right thought, uh, but uh, wise intention, I think that's what there, there is on, the, on that prayer wheel. Um, is really the key. That is, you see the bigger picture and then you say, I'm going for it. And having that clearly in your heart and your mind sets you on a direction that if you stay connected to that intention will keep leading you onward. Then there's our actions in the world, our speech, action, and livelihood. And there's the development of the mind and the heart training, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. But it starts with the decision to go for it. And that's intention. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll talk about both of those different levels First on the, the moment-to-moment level, what we introduced in the, um, uh, in the instructions a few days ago. How many people have been playing around working with intentions in, in the last few days? It's really powerful. As I, I said in, when I gave the instructions, you start to see the connection between the mind and the body and that you can choose whether to act on every impulse. And just by learning to give yourself a little bit of space between the, uh, the simple little things like, oh, should I go for a cup of tea or not? Or should I um, walk fast or walk, walk slow? Those little decisions by noticing on that level, you start to open up a whole possibility of choice and how it works in a very profound way, why understanding intention is really the key to seeing whether you're creating suffering or happiness, is that in every moment there's intention and whether or not you act from a wholesome motivation or an unwholesome motivation will be planting very directly powerful seeds in your unfolding. The Buddha says in one teaching, he says, I tending, sorry, intending I tell you is karma. Intending one creates karma by way of body, speech, and mind. So this is pretty big. If karma is dependent on intention, and I just want to give you, explore a little bit with you how this works. It's said, if you are acting from motivation based in grasping, aversion, or confusion, delusion, 
you are sowing the seeds of suffering. If you are acting from the opposite, from a motivation based in non-greed or letting go or generosity, the full flowering of that, non-aversion or kindness, non-delusion or clarity and wisdom, you are sowing seeds of happiness and well-being. And just to make this point relevant to you, so it's not just a theoretical notion, let's do a little uh, thought game, thought experiment. Um, Close your eyes and think of some act or um, words that you spoke somewhere in your past that you um, that were missing the mark as it say, as it says that you um, don't feel so good about maybe you click the send button on an email or got sharp with someone you care about or um, some other situation just uh, let it come to your consciousness and we'll explore at least four ways that that perhaps less than skillful act planted seeds of suffering. One, as you remember back, remember how it felt the moment or the moment after you did it. Say you clicked that send button. Yeah, they deserve it. And then, That's one place. Sometimes it feels good for a moment and then afterwards, hmm, how, how was that? The energy that would come back to you from whoever is on the receiving end, what was that like? Was there a thank you for the feedback? Or what energy came back to you? The recollection right now, as you think about it, how does it feel? Probably not so pleasant. And the likelihood that you will do that in the future is a little bit stronger because that habit was practiced in that time. Every time you practice a particular way, you strengthen that possibility unless you're aware and see clearly. So that's four ways that that act planted unhealthy seeds in the moment, right after, what comes back to you, the recollection, and the habit practiced. Okay, so that's the unpleasant news. I'm not gonna leave you here, don't worry. Take a nice deep breath clean the board in your mind. And here's the good news. Think of a really skillful act that you've done. Or you were there for a friend, 
or uh, just a random act of kindness. There's just something beautiful came through you. And if you have something, bring it into your consciousness. Remember that whole scenario. And as you do, again, notice the seeds that have been planted. How did it feel in the moment that you acted with kindness or skill? Probably felt pretty good. The energy that comes back to you, what was that like? Perhaps connection, gratitude, love. As you think about it right now, how does it feel? Probably pretty good. Oh yeah, sometimes I do some good things. And the likelihood of that habit being strengthened is greater because you practiced it. You planted a seed of skillful habits. So there's four ways that that act planted healthy seeds in the moment, in the energy that comes back, the recollection, and the habit that's been practiced. Okay, you can open your eyes if you like. So when that, that, that first landed for me, I thought, whoa, okay, I've got some choice here. Mostly, I thought I was just, you know, that's the way I was and, you know, good luck with changing. But the gift of mindfulness is you start to wake up. And the gift of being here on the retreat particularly, is that you can see the subtleties of mind that much more clearly. Isn't that so? For better or worse. You see it. And particularly, when you see it and you see all of those habits, it can be really humbling. Isn't that so? Believe me, I know. It's humbling, but it's really good news because you're seeing it clearly. And until you see it clearly, you are blind and unconscious around those habits. So being humbled is actually, as it turns out, not such a bad thing, it's a great thing. A line that I love, maybe I shared it here already, uh, Pema Chodron's line where she says, take delight in the awareness that sees the dukkha. Take delight in the awareness that sees the dukkha. That is, feel good that you're seeing those habits that you're starting to wake up. And as humbling as it is, this is an interesting 
little piece of information around um, karma, that it's actually better on a karmic level. It's better to do something unskillful and know that you're doing it than to do something unskillful and not have a clue. Now you might say, as the first time I heard that, saying, hold on a minute, that's not very fair. <laughs> you know, if you don't know any better, it's not your fault. And it's true, you're doing the best you can. But if you don't know any better and don't realize that it's unskillful, you're bound to repeat it. Whereas if you know better, you're kind of in that no person's land of knowing and still doing it, it's actually better because you start to see the pain that comes from that action. So when you get humbled and you say to yourself or reflect, I can't believe I just did that. Take delight in the awareness that sees the dukkha. And just know that you're waking up. And this is a process. This is a process of purification. Here's, uh, if I can pull it up. This is from Ram Dass. I don't think I shared it here either. He says, uh, As you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, it's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates of the temples get fiercer as you proceed towards each inner temple, but of course the light is brighter too. So every time you see it, and you see your intention behind it, you can wake up. And by noticing your intention, what was really behind it, was it grasping, was it aversion, was it complete delusion? Ah, I'm seeing it. And then you have a chance to change. As the Buddha says, drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the the wise ones gather little by little, fill themselves with good. Every time you do it in a skillful way, you are transforming suffering into happiness. Now, it's crucial how you relate to that unskillful thought or action. And again, this comes back to intention. Because there you are, you see yourself doing something unskillful or thinking an unskillful thought or acting in an unskillful way. If there's judgment around it, then that is a moment of both aversion and delusion. It's a moment of identification 
and selfing and adding on that second arrow. What a jerk I am. What a pathetic meditator. Oh, I'm such a spiritual person, right? Okay. And if there's judgment, you're deepening the imprint that comes with that contraction of mind. So there is a moment of intention, not conscious, but a moment that you're acting out of aversion and delusion. If you can see that unskillful thought, word, or action with compassion, if you can hold it with compassion, then you're changing your relationship to that habit. Because there's not identification in the moment that you just see, oh, this is just habits. Okay, it's okay, dear. It's a moment of kindness, a moment of wisdom, a moment of compassion. And this, I have shared this uh, with, with some of you and I've shared on other retreats. This was my main practice for about two years. Okay. I had the intention that every time I saw my mind get lost in judging, that was the big one for me, because uh, I've got a really good judging mind, <clears throat> maybe even better than yours. <laughs> If one were to judge, yeah. Uh, every time I saw the judgment and judged it, I was just deepening it. Every time I had the intention to see it with compassion, I was shifting my relationship. And so for two years, my main practice was noticing the judging with kindness. And so I'll just offer to you, again, a, a quick exercise. Suppose you're really caught in a judging mind. Yeah. You know, oh, oh, look at my mind, it's just all over the place. Oh, what a rotten meditator you are. Oh, that was a judgment. Okay, so when you see that. Is that familiar? Yeah. This is what I did. You might just try this. Close your eyes and put your hand on your cheek. And just feel the, the tenderness right through your hand as you recognize, oh, judging, judging, whether it's your hand on your cheek or your heart, either way. And notice the tone. Notice that feeling. Oh, it's just judging. It's okay, dear. Feel the tenderness. Let Kuan Yin do the recognition. Okay, you can put your hand down. That was my main practice for two years. I didn't do this each time. I did it a lot at the beginning because there's something about really touching yourself physically that reminds you. But after a while, and I'd, every time I'd forget or I'd start to f hear it in a different way, I'd do that. But after a while, the tone in my mind became Kuan Yin doing the noting. Oh, this judging judging. And that intention to change radically shifted my relationship to myself, to my judging mind and to judging. Another variation that 
uh, it's been mentioned in passing, but it occurs to me to just share it with you here, is the mindful self-compassion break that Kristen Neff and Chris Germer have put together. Here's a very simple practice. You can just uh, see for yourself. Suppose you're really having, giving yourself a hard time. They say, put your hand on your heart. And this releases oxytocin and um, just starts to soothe the whole system. And they encourage a little reflection. Oh, this is hard. This is suffering. This is part of life. You might think of all the people in the world who are going through what you're going through right now, giving themselves a hard time. And may I hold this suffering, this pain with kindness, compassion. And you're both the one who's hurting inside and the one who can hold her or him. Okay. So either way, when you see something unskillful, in the moment that you see it in that new way without identification, you are planting seeds of compassion and very powerful intention that you're shifting from suffering to happiness. Another possibility, and uh, I'm sure many of you have, uh, have this in your toolkit, is having a sense of humor about this crazy mind. You know, if you can laugh at the mind, then you're in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke. Right? You know, wow, look at this mind. When you can change from, oh gosh, look at my, my yucky mind, to, wow, look at the mind, then there's, again, a non-identification with it. So mindfulness um, gives us the possibility of choice of how to relate to it. And if we can get in touch with the intention to relate with kindness and compassion and lightness, non-identification, we are shifting those habits. But this process takes patience because we can go unconscious really quickly. We've practiced it another way. In uh, this book, um, The Power of Habit, did I mention this here? By uh, Charles Duhigg. He, he uh, tracked as far as the brain, brain research that when you are triggered into a habitual response that you would prefer were not there, when the stimulus hits that, hits you, if it's a strong enough habit, your brain actually just goes offline. Critical thinking is gone and you're lost. And then at some point you wake up and you might find yourself, oh, I can't believe I'm, I'm here again. Okay? It's because you've just really gone unconscious. Or as uh, I think um, I might have mentioned, Paul Ekman talked about the refractory period where you're out of your mind for a little while. And mindfulness has been shown to shorten that refractory period where you're just lost. So it takes patience. But 
when you think about the alternative, oh, let's see, cultivating more greed, hatred, and delusion, or starting to wake up, what else are you going to do? Albert Einstein was, uh, was asked uh, near the end of his life, this reporter, uh, a journalist uh, asked him um, about inventing the light bulb. And there were 2,000 attempts before he actually succeeded. And this guy said, um, uh, Mr. Edison, oh, sorry, not, not uh, Einstein, Edison. <laughs> Wrong genius, right, <laughs> right. Thomas Edison, right. <clears throat> I quote Einstein a lot, but not on this one. So back to Thomas Edison. <clears throat> and this guy said, um, uh, Mr. Edison, how did it feel to fail 2,000 times before succeeding? And Edison looks at him and he says, my dear man, I did not fail. I invented the light bulb and it was a 2,000 step process. <laughs> it takes persistence and commitment. And this is the second aspect of intention. What keeps us going? What keeps us staying the course, facing in the right direction, when this is so hard. <clears throat> and this is where the bigger intention, the macro intention of an inspiring vision, an aspiration that really touches us, keeps fueling our practice. Something has gotten you here, signing up for this crazy thing to do for one or two months, you know, that would be hard to explain mo to most anybody who didn't quite get it. You know. Something in you said, I'm going for it. You might have had some second thoughts from time to time, <laughs> but you can't turn back once you hear that call. And this is where this beautiful notion of wise right intention comes in because it is simply inclining the mind and facing in one direction and having a continued um, aditana determination to keep going even in the face of hardship. Now, intention is different from expectation, and it's different from goal, even, the way I see it. There's not a timetable. I hope you don't have a timetable. By the end of the month or two months, this will happen. I'll ha fix myself, or whatever it is. You let go of the timetable, you let go of the report card, and you just know that this is where you're headed and this is the next step that will get you there. 
as long as you're facing in the right direction, that's all you need. And from starting with wise understanding to see where you want to go, then you just put your heart, like I mentioned about sadha, that faith or trust, you put your heart into your practice. And this is where intention can inspire us. It's really, it takes courage to do this because you're on a journey into unknown territory. And if you take it like an adventure instead of some kind of a, you know, obstacle course, um, then you don't need to have everything safe and have it all just laid out and know where you're going. If you're willing to grow and wanting to grow, it means you've got to be willing to make mistakes as well. And as one of my inspirations, uh, uh, Julia Butterfly Hill says, as long as you're learning, there are no mistakes. And so you have that vision, you have a, um, uh, an inspiring aspiration that keeps you facing in the, in the right direction. And it's kind of mysterious once you have that confidence that you can just keep on going and letting life support you. But it starts with you making the decision to take those next steps. For those who are um, nervous about making wrong decisions, not knowing where they're gonna end up, I'll share with you a story for, uh, that, that I learned about the possibility of l- not needing to know. I was at a crossroads in my life. This is in uh, 1977. I had um, taught school for um, um, fifth and sixth grade for many years in New York City, and it was just time to go. I loved teaching for many years, but when it stops being enthusiastic, it can get old very quickly. Uh, And I just kind of, the Dharma had gotten its hook in me and I knew there was something else than just teaching in New York. But I was afraid to leave my job in New York because uh, I was making $17,000 a year, (laughs) which was big money for this single guy at the time. So there was job security, but I knew it was just time to go. And I thought maybe I'd go up to IMS. Uh, I had sat the first three month retreat. Uh, it was the, I took off that part of that school year and I was completely, you know, I was hooked before then, but that was it. Maybe I'll go up to IMS and work on staff there. It seemed like a good, good thing to do. Maybe I'll move out to California because that was calling to me. I had taken a few trips out here and somebody was saying, hey, you can move in at our place. Or I was thinking maybe I'll go for my um, uh, Asian experience and travel to uh, India and Thailand. They all seemed like really good options and I was afraid to make a mistake. So I went round and round until finally I remembered when I was out in uh, Colorado in the summer, each summer I'd go to Naropa uh, uh, for the summer, be with Joseph. 
um, and I remembered that uh, there was this very wise man named Reverend Miller uh, in Denver who I would see, I had seen from time to time, and he was a psychic. Five dollars a reading. (laughs) He wasn't in it for the money. And he was really wise. And I went to him and I said, uh, I gave him these different options, and I said, uh, hey, help me out here. What should I do? I don't want to blow it. And he looked at me for, oh, he looked just like Colonel Sanders, by the way, just a <laughs> spinning image, big belly and glasses and a beard, a little goatee and all. You know. So it was, you know, in those days, I liked Colonel Sanders. So I know. And, uh, and I said, what should I do, uh, Reverend Miller? And he said, um, he thought for a while and he, then he, he sighed and he said, well, <clears throat> I'm not going to tell you what to do. I thought, oh shoot, I just blew five dollars. And then he said, uh, but I will tell you one thing, it doesn't matter. And I said, I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about. And he believed in spirit guides, that was how he held reality and he said if you're frozen in indecision as long as you're stuck your guides can't help you you're just frozen in paralysis but as soon as you get in touch with what the next step feels like the right one and you put yourself in motion as you start moving your guides can help you and you can see oh yeah, this feels right. Or you can see, no, this isn't quite the right way. Maybe I should do the, other, the next option. Or you can start putting yourself in motion and another door opens that you never would have thought of to begin with. So he said, either way, any which way, it doesn't matter. Your life will keep on unfolding. You have to just keep on getting clear what your truth is and to listen to what your heart says it needs. Best five dollars I ever spent. (laughs) But it's one thing to just kind of let your life unfold, it's a whole other to have a vision, an inspiring vision that knows, that tells you what really speaks to you. And this sometimes in the teachings is called uh, clear comprehension of purpose, where you are moved for whatever it is that moves you to practice, that something touches you deeply and that inspires you. You know, whether it's to become enlightened or to be free of suffering or to learn to open your heart fully, or to just wake up to your life, whatever it is, and it can change over time. Sataka Sampajanya, clear comprehension of purpose. And we can get it sometimes when we have that bright faith that I spoke about um, early in the retreat, and we get inspired by a possibility. And once you can see that possibility and are moved by it, 
then the intention is you deciding to make it happen. There's a, a famous uh, wisdom teaching by uh, this, uh, uh, this 20th century writer, the early, early part of the 20th century, Napoleon Hill. He wrote this book called Think and Grow Rich. It's kind of a strange title for a very wise book. And his axiom was, whatever the mind can, can conceive and believe, it can achieve. This is like the Buddha saying, mind is the forerunner of all things. So believing in the possibility and then deciding to go for it. And when you do that, you also can see all the things that get in the way that say, oh no, you, you can't, you're just fooling yourself, you can't do that. But once you are clear with that purpose inside, in your heart, then um, mountains can move. And I'll share with you a couple of stories about the power of intention on this level. This was from um, Martin Seligman's book, he was the father of, he is the father of positive psychology. He wrote a book called Authentic Happiness. And it started the whole positive psychology movement. And this is how it started. He says, the notion of a positive psychology movement began at a moment in time a few months after I'd been elected president of the American Psychological Association. It took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I write books about children, I'm not all that good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air and dancing around. I yelled at her, and after a while, she came back and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. Yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, do you remember... Do you remember before my fifth birthday? Did I read this before? No. Did, do you remember before my fifth birthday? From the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided to not whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> and if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. That was an epiphany for me in terms of my own life. Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I'd spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in my soul and the last 10 as a walking nimbus cloud in a household of radiant sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to being grumpy, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. That was the beginning of the positive psychology movement. In that moment, I resolved to change. Now, you might not have the, the influence that he, he did, but you have influence over your own life. And we can all get clear on the decision to go for it, to go for the healthiest, most inspiring vision. And I wanna share with you another story from a book I love called How We Choose to Be Happy. These friends who uh, 
did a research project of 320 certifiably happy people over a three-year period. And they'd go into, uh, into a town and say, who's the happiest person you know? And they'd say, oh, Shirley. And they'd speak to Shirley, you happy? I'm pretty happy. And then they'd ask if they could speak to other people. And if everybody agreed that Shirley was happy, they'd say, why are you so happy? And this was Adele's story. And the, they distilled nine choices of that all these people have in common. And the first choice is intention. This is Adele. In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground, leaving me with nothing. No clothes, photos, furniture. No material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman. At the same time, my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. I had nothing. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity here. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. And Rick and Greg, who, who wrote the book, are, are good friends. And um, they say that it took her a while, as she actually writes about it in the book, it took her a while. It wasn't like, okay, all of a sudden now it's all over. It took her about five years to process all of that pain but she was clear that she was going to go towards true well-being. And they say, she's somebody, she, you walk in, she walks into a room and just kind of lights up the room. So no matter what has gone on in your life, it's never too late to change. And in fact, sometimes you are more motivated because you know dukkha really well. It can be one of the gifts of dukkha to say, I'm going for another way. So, clear comprehension of purpose and this larger intention. The intention to change. And now your intention has to be a clear decision, not just wishing you could change, hoping you'll change. 
you know. There's a power in you getting clear and deciding, deciding. If your intention to change is not as great as your intention to stay the same, you'll stay the same. But if your intention to change and grow and wake up is greater than your intention to stay the same, that's what will happen. And it doesn't have to be 100% pure intention. We can have mixed intentions and sometimes we can get confused. But as long as you keep staying connected to something that really inspires you, that clear comprehension of purpose, then you keep on taking the next step. What got you here? There was something that kept on calling you from the first time that you heard the Dharma to right now. How can you doubt in that process? You just keep on showing up. I remember for me, you know, I pinch myself most every day. How did I get to sit up here? How did that happen? Little Jamie from Queens? <laughs> that insecure kid who couldn't look at them in the mirror without wincing? I just, when I, w I was so moved by the Dharma and, you know, I share with you and uh, I was inspired by Joseph and, and then I just went on some retreats and all I wanted to do was let people know about the Dharma and have them hear Joseph give a talk on concepts and reality. So I just said, I'll organize retreats when I came out to California. I'll be the contact which when I think about my organizing skills makes me shudder you know, <laughs> on, on scraps of paper and things like that. I'll be the manager. You know. I just want to get them to, to hear him talk about concepts and reality. Blow their minds. Yeah, yeah. What in your journey kept you going and keeps you going and who knows where you're going? It's so exciting. You're all agents of consciousness that will have rippling effects. You can't help but have rippling effects. If you just keep on listening to what really moves you, that's the key, to keep on hearing the truth. I think of this practice as learning to hear the truth more and more, what really moves us, what our heart's desire really is. And there we are in every moment learning to listen to the truth. Oh, right now, there's a, an itch on my nose. There's a breathing in and breathing out. Here's a sound. Here's a sadness or love. Oh, this is what's happening. And more and more, we're learning to listen deeply to the truth right inside of us. And the, the archetype I love is Milarepa, who is the... Uh, uh, the great Tibetan yogi, you can always tell it's Milarepa. He has his hand to his ear and listening to the 100,000 songs of the Dharma. That's what we're doing. We're learning to listen more and more to the truth right inside of us. That's your North Star. What moves you? What moves you? And I just invite you for a moment to just do a little 
um, exercise, going inside to get in touch with your sincere intention. What is it that brought you to this retreat? What is it that has called you that you can't ignore? What's the possibility in your mind and your heart, whether it's deeply understanding suffering, growing in compassion, awakening to the deepest truth, becoming a a force of goodness. I'll be quiet for a moment and let whatever your vision is that's touched you, just come into your consciousness right now. Whatever you can conceive and believe you can achieve. And first just conceive it. And now just entertain the possibility that this is where you're headed. And if it feels like a worthwhile endeavor, just imagine what it would look like a year, five years, 10 years from now, as you keep heading in that direction, how practice will keep on maturing within you. And how it will affect everybody around you. What a gift. And if it seems like a good idea, get in touch with your decision to go for it. No timetable, no report card, just a heartfelt decision to go for it and let life support you in that journey. And just notice, feel the power in that intention. Your clear comprehension of purpose and seeing your practice not only for your own well-being, but everybody will be benefiting from it. You can open your eyes if you'd like. Stay connected to that. So this is understanding the power of intention, the beginning of all karma, and you're in every moment giving yourself the possibility of moving towards more happiness and having a wide vision that keeps you facing in that direction and inspiring you.
So I'll end with this quote, perhaps some of you are familiar with, I love from um, the Scottish Himalayan expedition by W.H. Murray. Until one is committed, there's hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there's one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That is that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no person could have dreamt would have come their way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.